0: Good evening, everybody. Acts twenty, verse one to twelve. I entitled it at first uh, the seven days, seven days in Troas, but as I read through it, I thought there's one theme that comes comes out for me, and I decided to entitle this lesson the best Lord's supper ever the title for tonight, just want to welcome Jack Hall and his his lady, they are living in town, they're new here, if you haven't met Jack, they're from Portland and they are sweet homians now, last week we saw what people do when they love money more than truth, Paul is at this point in which town, anybody want to take a guess? I'm a bad preacher. I'm joking. You're a bad listener. No, I'm joking. It's okay. Ephesus. Yes. Paul is in Ephesus. He spent at least two years there preaching the gospel. Um, So he's in that city. He's got tremendous success. And then there's the silversmith Demetrius. He gets upset because he's losing business. The more Paul preaches, the more the more he loses his business and he gets upset, man, because people don't want to buy these idols anymore because they realize, oh my goodness, God doesn't live in a piece of silver. So he rouses up a crowd and the crowd turns into a mob. Classic, classic, classic. And all of this, this whole crowd and all of this mob is in defense of a God that doesn't exist. We need to defend this God against Paul. And we do that with a mob. Ridiculous, isn't it? Can this God not defend herself? No, it seems like she cannot. So Demetrius is upset because the preaching of the gospel is practically killing his business. And um, uh, in the heat of the moment, as this crowd and this mob comes to the surface, Paul says, I want to speak to these guys. I want to get in there and preach, man. I want to tell them who the true God is. Typical Paul. But his friends, his disciples are like, no, no, don't, don't go, don't go, don't, don't go into this crowd. Why? Because they would kill him. These people are upset. Listen, people will kill you for money, quick, quick. I think most of the murders that take place in our world has got to do something with money. Um, so like every other time that Paul's life was threatened and he leaves, the damage is already done. The kingdom had already spread in that place. And so that's where we are tonight. The kingdom had already infiltrated Asia. We've already read that um, every person in the whole of Asia, every Greek and Jew had heard the gospel. That's incredible. So um, it seems like this was Satan's last attempt here in Ephesus. He didn't like what was happening in Ephesus. I mean, these guys were performing incredible miracles. The gospel was spreading like nobody's business. And Satan's like, I'm gonna, I've got to do something here. And one of the best ways is to do what? Cut off the head of the snake in their eyes. who, Which is who? Paul. We cut him out. That will quickly silence these Christians. We kill him. We take him out. And this movement will die out. But God had other plans. So Paul is still in Ephesus. The uproar has ended. What happens next? I'll go back to the map. Maybe just recap quickly. Oh. We are in Ephesus over there. All right. So let's see where he goes next. Um, The text says, When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So he decides it's time. Let's back up. Let's go. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece. Where he stayed three months. Let's go back quickly. So he is down here in Ephesus. So he decides to go up all the way through there. Remember Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All the way down to Corinth. We, the text doesn't say he stopped in Corinth. But it says he stopped in Greece. But I think that's where he parks. And, he, and that's sort of where we are now. Alright. So that's a long journey just in like two verses. So Paul says, I'm out of here. I'm out of Ephesus. It's time for him to leave. Now, he isn't running away, in my opinion. He's not running away from the mob. That's not the most accurate way to depict what he's doing. He is what I call channeling effectiveness. He realizes in Ephesus, there's a wall in front of him. These people don't want him. It's it's reached a point of intensity now, and he thinks for a moment, Where can I use my energy and ability and the spirit in me the best? Let me go. The people in Corinth need my energy more. The people on the way there need my impact more. I can get more done if I leave. There's enough disciples here in Ephesus. They can continue with the work. They can continue spreading the gospel. But I think it's good for me to go. And so he goes. It seems like his presence in Ephesus brought strife. But his presence in Greece... Is needed, And remember a statement that I've made a few times that I heard from a missionary one day. Every time the disciples settled, God unsettled them. The goal was never for Paul to stay in, 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 in a place like Ephesus for 10 years. He was a missionary on a mission to take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. He was a co- the commander of a, of, of, a, of a group of soldiers, disciples, to go to the ends of the earth. And so he's got to keep moving. The gospel is living and it needs to spread and His disciples need to be um, the same way. So, the original language doesn't say that He gave them encouragement. I'm talking about verse 2. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement. That area, meaning um, this whole area, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He didn't go through there and just, you know, when you read it in, in the English, it says, it's like, He went encouraging people, oh, you know, keep up, and and that's what it sounds like in English. But it was interesting when I read the Greek there because it says that he gave them logos. And they translated this into he came to encourage them. What do we know about the word logos, anybody? Where does that word come up the most? The word logos. The word. Yes, isn't that interesting? In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And then what happens to the Word in verse 14 of chapter 1 of John? The Word became flesh. Jesus is the living Word. And the translator, and I've got no problem with this, interpre- this, this interpretation that this translation makes. Why doesn't it just say that He, that he just came, brought the, to them the Word? Because when the word is embodied, it is encouraging. And I've put in here my own words. um, If Logos is Jesus, then it means that as Paul traveled through these areas, he gave them Jesus through words and through his love and through his actions and through his presence. In other words, Paul, being like Jesus and speaking like Jesus, encouraged the people of God. And that's exactly the same thing that you and I can do for each other. It is the most encouraging to people when we are like Jesus. Because then we are the logos, embodied. So I like that. Well, let's see what happens. Now he is down in Greece. The text says, because some Jews had plotted against him. So he's already got enemies there. And we've got to go back to the second missionary journey to go figure out what this is, who these people are. But there's some Jews that plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria. So he wants to go to Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. Now let me just show you the map quickly so that you can get this. So he's in Ephesus. He's traveled all the way to Corinth. And now he wants to go back to S- This is Syria. So he wants to take a ship from there. To Syria, but he hears, hey, there's some guys that wants to kill him. So he decides, oh my goodness, I'm just going to go back the way that I came. All right, everybody with me. So he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. By the way, you want to name your next child? You just go to the Bible. Sopater, Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby. Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas where we spent seven days. Let's just go back to the beginning of these verses. The Jews wanted Paul dead. Okay? Okay. If you remember with me, you probably won't because, you know, if I didn't prepare this, I probably would have forgotten as well. Um, Paul went into Thessalonica, and there was a, there was a big uh, there was a synagogue there, and there was a big Jewish community there. And he left from there, and he went to Berea because the, the, the Jews wanted to kill him in Thessalonica. When he got to Berea, he heard the people in Thessalonica had heard that he's in Berea, and they sent a huge mob of people to Berea to come and kill him. The Jews in Thessalonica didn't like Paul. In Corinth, it was also the Jews that made a united attack against him. Once again, they beat the synagogue ruler in front of the proconsul of, of Rome. You can go read it right through the book of Acts, how the Jews are trying to kill Paul. And now Paul is back in Corinth, and these Jews have decided that they still want him dead. This guy needs to die. It must be terrible to, be this type of, you know, to have this type of life. You are in Ephesus, they want to kill you. Then you go to Greece, they want to kill you. You go to Thessalonica, to Macedonia, then they want to kill you. Everywhere you go in this world, people want you dead. What a life. They tried going to the Romans previously to have Paul arrested or beaten or whatever. That didn't work. And so what do they decide in this instance? It doesn't help we go to the Proconsul because last time that happened, nothing was done. The Proconsul just said, well, it's your issue. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to assassinate him. We're going to kill this guy. And you know what? The best way that I can think about it, that probably happened is, well, we've heard that Paul's going to set sail for Syria. So the best place to kill him is going to be where? On a ship. So we get some sailors to sort him out. And uh, he's got nowhere to run on a ship, right? <laughs> it's just two corners. And you've got to be somewhere in the middle. I suspect that is what happened here. Um, crooked sailors, confined space. That's the end of Paul's life. Um, what I find interesting is just how God protects him every time. And even when he was in Corinth previously, how God used the Roman government to protect him. You know, sometimes we look at the government and the Roman government was, was it was an evil it was an evil system. But the, God used an evil system to protect his people. And that also just brought me a sense of comfort. It doesn't matter what our government does. God can use it for his glory. There's always a higher authority than the government, right? And God decides. What's gonna, you know, I, I, I had yesterday a discussion with a, a man, and, and his life is falling apart because he feels it's the end of America currently, and there's going to be civil war and civil unrest, and he's on edge, he has to take anxiety medications, and, and I was just like, man, do you believe in Jesus or don't you? Do you believe that he's the supreme ruler of the universe or not? Don't you think he's in control of all the nations of the earth, that he commands kings what they need to do or not? Biden, Trump, whatever they think they can do or not do, God rules over these guys. He'll tell them what to do when he wants it done. I mean, for crying in a bucket, look at um, uh, the the, um, the Babylonian king. God, was, was it him or was it um, it was Belshazzar, right? Which was the king that God made like a cow? Nebuchadnezzar, that was the Babylonian, eh? I mean, if God can make a king. Live like a cow in the field. For seven years, I think it was. Yes, he can do anything to a king today as well. We have nothing to fear. So, look at Paul's companions here. And I, I, I put the places in red and the names in bold. At every place he went, he made a disciple that follows him. Check there. Berea. So part. He gets into Berea. Somebody, he gets somebody into the mission with him. Derby was in, A, was in, uh, A, A, um, before Asia, Asia Minor. Thessalonica, he got Secundus. Asia, there's Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus. And these people's names are in the Bible. What an incredible honor it must be to be named by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 says that they, they, they waited for the festival of unleavened bread. That's related to the Passover. They didn't wait because this was celebrated. Luke is just indicating to us the, um, the time when this trip took place. Okay. Now we are off to Troas. So they arrive in Troas on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Those of you who do Lord's Supper talks, you have a biblical basis to take as much time as you want. And don't let people give you nonsense. This is the best Lord's Supper the world has ever seen. In actual fact, I'm I'm quite confident, unless you can point out to me otherwise, I think this is the first recorded Lord's Supper that we that we have of, of, of a, a church doing this. Not referring just to the occasions in Jerusalem, but where this is clearly explained to us. And so, if we're a Bible-based church, we need to do Lord's Supper like this. Right? That's what the Bible says. Talk till midnight. I hope you've got a, a cooler box next to you for tonight. So... We don't see any church in Troas on Paul's missionary journey. Because what happened last time in Troas? Paul went through Asia and he didn't preach the gospel and he ends up in Troas. And it's in Troas that he has a dream where God calls him where? To Macedonia. There was no church. We don't pick up in the text that there was a church in Troas. But Troas is also in Asia. And remember what happened in Asia. The, the, sort of the capital city was Ephesus. And so the Bible says that everybody in the whole of Asia had heard the gospel. So while Paul was in Ephesus, the gospel, within two years it spread to Troas at least, to the best that we can understand. And by the time that Paul arrives there now, it seems like there's a, there's a church in Troas. All right? Um, and it seems like they get together here on the first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now just a, a side note here, not, not to be technical, but to, to, to sort of teach us that we've got to be careful to use the Bible and texts like this to try and create a doctrine about times and dates and places, etc. And just hear me out. I grew up with the teaching that this um, verse proves that the church in Troas took the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And I think it's a little bit of a fast stretch to say that they did this every Sunday. We're not 100% sure. This is one incident that, exp- that says the church came together to partake of the Lord's Supper. And, but, but people would use this to say, well, here we see it. This is, this is what, what we see in Troas, and therefore the Lord's Supper has to be taken every Sunday based on this verse. And you, you guys know I, I'm a real ferv- a fervent believer that we've got to let the Bible say what it says. And I just think it's a bit stretched too far to use this verse to make that claim, to make that doctrine. This is one incident. This doesn't say that they did this every week. Okay? This is just one incident. So, so, um, so two things, two problems with that. The text says they came together to break bread. It doesn't say they did this every Sunday. Um, and secondly... What is, what is interesting and which was quite controversial, and I'm so glad that we're not invo- involved with these controversies, is that um, they, I, I went to a church in, um, in Texas. Um, it's called Richland's, Richland Hills Church of Christ. I think it's the biggest church of Christ in America. I think like 6,000, 7,000 people. And there was a big controversy because, first of all, they got musical instruments. And the acapella churches obviously deemed them now, stamped them as you know, the, the sinners of the movement. But a second thing that they did is, is that they have Lord's Supper, they have worship services on Saturday night. So they got services on Saturday night, and then I think they have on Sundays as well. And the key reason why they said that is because the Jewish Sunday, the Jewish Sunday, oh, first day of the week starts when? Saturday. Six o'clock Saturday starts the first day of the week. And so it is possible that... They got together on a Saturday evening, if that was the Jewish sat, uh, first day of the week. And so you've got to be very careful if you want to make a law on this verse saying, Lord's Supper must be taken on a Sunday. It cannot be taken on a Saturday. That's a little bit of a stretch because it could have been a Saturday. Okay? So the point, the reason why I'm raising this, not because it's any issue, I'm just saying, be careful of when people take the Bible to make legalistic rules that the Bible does not make. Of course, it can go different ways and it produces controversy and it produces conflict. It doesn't have to be conflict. All right. This is simply one incident that, that Luke is trying to describe to us. And I want us to, as we read this, ask the question, but why, why is Luke recording to us this unique Lord's Supper incident? That's the point why he writes it. He's not trying to make us rules for all of eternity by writing this down. If there's a rule that the apostle wanted us to clearly follow, do you think that they would clearly state it, or do you think that they would hide it behind complexities okay what it's, what is really important for me for me here is what Paul is doing and that 's what I really want us to focus on what is Paul doing? Paul spoke to the people, and here once again we and, and it 's not to be critical of, of what we are experiencing, but to point out like what really is the life of the early church. What we see here in Troas. Okay. There's various words for speaking. One of the words is keruchma. And I might have shared it with you. Might not. I don't know. am going to share it with you in any way. The keruch was the person that would go into the marketplace. Stand on a podium. And bring a message from the king. It's not debatable. He tells you what God says. You sit, listen, and submit. The king is speaking. That's the keruch. And so when the Greek word keruchma is being used, it's referring to that. It's the proclamation of the word of God from the king. All right? That is, in a sense, what we've grown up, I've grown up with, is preaching behind the pulpit is keruchma. The proclamation of the word of God in churches all over the world. That is not what this word is over here at this Lord's Supper. This word here, Paul spoke, is dialegumai. We've spoken about this before. Their Lord's Supper was not a proclamation, a keruchma. It was a dialogue. When it says that they went on until midnight, they are having dialogue until midnight. Paul probably spoke the most. Because people had questions, and they didn't understand. And there was, there was talking back and forth. Yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? What about Isaiah, what he says here? Yeah, this, that, and the other. It was a discussion, a fruitful discussion. And then he talks later, he kept on talking until midnight. Now that word over there is once again interesting. It's logos. <laughs> the word. He kept on bringing up the word. So there's dialogue, and this word, and it goes on until midnight. This discussion. The word is alive. It's between the people, and, and everybody's thinking about it, hearing, listening, talking, sharing, discussing. Now, the reason why I bring this up, because I've experienced this in my own life. When, when we, in, in, in South Africa, we have basically started, in, in the time that I've met you, like three different churches. And one of the churches in Marisburg, for example, we would meet there every Sunday afternoon at people's homes, and I would never, we don't have a pulpit or a stadium or a podium, we would get together, and I didn't prepare anything, we'd get together and talk about our week, any question, any question going on, and then questions might come up, or thought might come up, and then I would take it from there, and we would go to the text, and we would read it ourselves, we start at one point and wherever it leads, that's where we go. But the word is alive and it's going on between us. And it was powerful and effective. It works. Because people have questions. We don't always understand things. And it's in discussion and dialogue and d- different angles and different views that we get to the to the core and to the to the truth. So I've seen this work. There is a place for keruchma. There is a place for it. I'm going to give you some indications where in the Bible we do find that. We find it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, where it says that Jonah went and preached to the people of Nineveh. That was a proclamation. Eight more days and God's going to destroy this place. Or uh, 40 days, I think it was. That's a proclamation. Jonah is not debating and dialoguing with the people of Nineveh. He tells them God's will. There's a place for that. It's not always the most effective place in the church because here we need to talk with each other. It's what the disciples did when they went into the world to preach. Mark chapter 16, verse 20. You can go find Kerukma there. Keruchma is not a dialogue. Keruchma is a monologue. Keruchma is telling you what the way that it is. And there's a place for that. But in this instance, in Acts chapter 20, when they had Lord's Supper, it was a discussion, it was a dialogue. It's a few times mentioned in Corinthians, it's mentioned in Timothy, mentioned in Titus. If you want those verses, I can um, give it to you. So primarily when we read the Bible, it seems like keruchma was used in speaking to the unbelievers. And the alegumai was mostly used when the church got together. All right, let's go on. So verse 8 says, now if you've got to see now there's the talking going on till midnight. They were meeting, it says there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. That verse is a bit odd. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on and on and on. (laughs) Yes, Paul, calm down. When he was sound asleep, He fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. (laughs) I want you to keep in mind, why is this in the Bible? They were meeting in the upper chamber, like Acts chapter 1 verse 13. This is a big house, three-story house. It's a nice house. Apparently in these days, like what we see in Acts chapter 1, This is the way people built their homes. Like the nice, relaxing room was the highest one. Okay? The fellowship room, the feast room. The rest of the city is sleeping. But God's people, they're sitting there discussing God's word. The logos. The original Greek says that Paul was long preaching. On and on and on. The young man sits in the window and falls asleep. So may it be known today, and I've said this to you before, if people fall asleep when Paul preaches, I do not feel sad or bad when people fall asleep when I preach. This is the first person ever to die of preaching. Preaching killed this guy. Um we see here just once again a totally different concept of of, of church. It's in people's homes. It's a discussion. Um, and I read something for the first time in preparing for this that I've never thought about. The scholar says that the reason why verse 8 is mentioned, that there were many lamps in the upstairs room, maybe there's something you can think about, but this guy says the reason why Luke mentions the lamps in the upstairs room is because... Um, they had smoke coming from them that potentially made this man fall asleep in the window. Never read that before, but that's a possibility. Maybe he's trying to protect Paul. Maybe he's just trying to say, Paul's going to read this one day, and it, it cannot say that his preaching was boring. So let me just put the lamps in there. Blame the lamps. I'm just joking. But I, that's the best explanation, I think. All right. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. Yes, bro. Don't you think that's enough when people die? Sit down. Let's, let's sleep now. You know? The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So this, this kid dies Raises him to life. Incredible story. He goes uh, back upstairs, and he says, No, 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 you thought that's the end. It's not. Open your Bible. He breaks bread, and then he preaches till morning. He conversed, communed, and he talked. That is one long worship service. Now the question is, on what day did they take the Lord's Supper? You get the complication here. If they met on Saturday night, then they, and they took it after midnight only. Well, at least Paul did. Then it means that Paul did it on our Sunday. All right. If they met on Sunday and Paul preached until midnight, on which day did Paul take the Lord's Supper? Monday. So if we want to make a law about the scripture and say it must be on a Sunday. I think we're missing the point, don't you think? I think then we're missing the point. And I, I just wanted to point that out. Be very careful to try and make laws and rules when God doesn't make it. Because it's going to put you in a complicated position. That's why you end up with people fighting over it. We don't have to fight over it. I'll explain now. The Lord's Supper is not a religious festival that is to be held on Sundays. Jesus never told us, you must do this on Sunday. Rather, Jesus said, whenever you meet, do this in remembrance of me. And when do we meet? Sundays. So we do it because that's when we meet. We don't do it because it's some law that was thrown out of the apostles' mouth. We meet on Sundays. And so that's when we do something that we do together. And it's been from the earliest times, the church's tradition, for Christians to meet on Sundays. And so since we meet on Sundays, that's when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Very simple. We don't have to go take scriptures out of context to force people to have Lord's Supper every Sunday. We just say, hey man, we're meeting Sunday, we're having Lord's Supper, you're welcome to join us. So, why did Luke record the story? I think it's actually just because of the miracle. It's because of the miracle. There's a kid. Remember, we've seen it so far in Ephesus. Paul does incredible miracles. This is a miracle. It's the resurrection of a human being. That's why Luke records it. That's what we see right through the book of Luke. That's one of the stories that came to Luke's mind. And he's like, yeah, we need to write about this one. When that Lord's Supper, they they in Troas. And that kid died when he fell out of the window. And Paul raised him t- to life. That was an incredible situation. It's the most profound communion ever. Can you imagine? Preaching that goes the whole night through. And somebody dies and is resurrected. Can you imagine the significance? Can you imagine when Paul... Goes back upstairs. The the kid has just died and he's alive again. And the kid's walking in next to him. Can you imagine his, 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 his talking points from then on? This is exactly why we are here, brothers and sisters. Because Jesus Christ died, but he was resurrected. Yes, you're looking for a Lord's Supper illustration. I do die quickly so I can raise you from the dead and have it as an illustration. Incredible. Imagine you were in that upstairs room. Can you experience a more vivid illustration of what the Lord's Supper is about? Jesus Christ dies for our sins. And he's raised from the dead to give us eternal life. Embodied. Incredible. So next time we have Lord's Supper, whoever does the communion, you have full throttle. Twelve hours. And whoever would like to die, just put up your hand beforehand, we'll. Have a stand up here and make you fall down. Best Lord's Supper ever. Uh, Three points just from me. Three thoughts that came to my mind to go back through the whole text. Choose social investment that is most effective. Let me explain what that means. Paul is in Ephesus. There's war all around him. People don't want him there. He's got to pause for a moment and think, where's the best place that I can invest my energy Where can I be most effective for God's kingdom? Hang around here and potentially die and hide away in corners because they want to kill me? Or go to Macedonia where the threat is less and where people need to hear the message still and go encourage the Christians. And so Paul looks at his life responsibly and he says, I'm going to go. And I think obviously the Holy Spirit was involved there. Sometimes in our relationships with people, there are certain people that are in our lives. They don't want to hear what we've got to say. They don't want anything to do with us. Or they continually seek your attention and your time and your energy, but they never change. We've got to be wise with who we interact with. Sometimes it's a good idea to rather let go of the people that don't want to have a positive influence in your life and move on to people who can use your energy better. So choose carefully who you spend time with. Choose carefully who you try to invest with. Make the most of your um, social investment. So you can be most effective. That's one point that I have. Um, Secondly. The most encouraging thing you can do for someone. Is to speak and be Jesus. It's very simple. To be a blessing to people. Just make sure that you are like Jesus. Um, If you are like Jesus. People will enjoy you. Uh, Good people. Sorry. Bad people might not. And thirdly. Seek opportunities to dialogue with fellow disciples over the Word of God. I am not pointing these things out in the Bible to try and break down what we have. This, this tradition that we have of having the pulpit and preaching, like, I love doing this. I can do this forever, right? And I'm not saying let's break it down and not do it. I'm just saying don't let this rob you of doing the, the thing the first century church did. Create opportunities to dialogue with the Word. Get people in your life. Get together with people. I know that Terry and Karen is meeting with with Gail and Norman. They do that, right? They get together on their own and they dialogue the Word of God. Fantastic. Look for those opportunities. Add that to what we already have. This is also valuable to listen to the Word and, and, and have it explained in a different way maybe. But look for opportunities to dialogue with fellow disciples. It's, it will enrich you. It, it will definitely enrich you. Any thoughts from your side? That's a conclusion. Thank you, um, Mama Bear, if you want to pause that. Yes, sir.